I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. I'm Paul Peterson, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and uh, one of the things that's happened surprisingly in the last few months is that Congress and the President were able to get together on a piece of legislation and actually make major changes in federal education policy. The Every Student Succeeds Act was passed in December 2015, and in that law are new provisions pertaining to digital learning or blended learning or virtual learning. All those are synonyms out there. And none of us really has a very good idea as to what the impact of this new federal law is going to have on that incredibly important uh, innovative space in K-12 education. So I'm very pleased that Susan Patrick has been willing to join me today. Susan Patrick is the president of INACOL, INACOL, quite an acronym, isn't it? Uh, She's the president of INACOL and she's a leading force. Susan Patrick is a leading force in innovation in the digital learning space and really represents a broad coalition of people in the industry who are exploring new ideas and new pathways. So Susan, here's the question I have for you. What's in this law and what impact do you think it's going to have? Oh, thanks, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here. Uh, the whole world changed in K-12 education policy on December 10th, and it truly was a bipartisan process going through the Senate and the House. I don't think we've seen that in the last several decades in any issue on Capitol Hill. So it was thrilling to see uh, Congress, the Senate come together and have the President sign the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, Right now in this country, we have an unprecedented opportunity to rethink what K through 12 education is, what it means, and what student success looks like. The federal bill, um, from the broadest perspective, really does shift the power back to the states and localities. And it does have very specific implications for digital learning, but it has a bigger implication for what do we want as the United States um, in each individual state for a high school diploma to mean? What does that mean to be a graduate that has the college and career-ready Um, skills that the law calls for, but it completely leaves it in the hands of states and localities to determine what the combination and balance of academic content knowledge, skills, problem solving, the kind of creative youth and citizens that we want to see. Well, the states too much these days have defined a high school diploma as something you get after you sit in your chair for X number of days and Y number of courses. So is this law going to change that propensity of states to stick to the old Carnegie unit? Yeah. So when you think about this, like the the states really, your, your whole high school transcript is built up of these Carnegie units or minimum exposure in a certain number of minutes of seat time for each subject. 
is it is this is crazy would we design our educational system today to prepare our kids for tomorrow doing this and the answer is no so the exciting um the exciting quite frankly intent of congress was to really ask the question what does student success look like and to build a new law that would support competency-based learning would support redefining Carnegie units in terms of what a student needs to know and be able to do or competencies um, that include uh, learning content, but these other important skills as well. And but if they're not going to tell the states what to do, they're, they're, that's the new idea behind this law is to let the states do what they want. How are they going to persuade states to move in a new direction? Right. So states right now have a really rare opportunity to work with um, leading districts, leading educators and practitioners, but also communities, civil rights organizations, to ask what is it we want our students to know and be able to do. States have the opportunity right now with all the flexibility in the world, literally. So anytime you look at the new federal law and ask, what if we set up uh, a next-gen accountability system that really looked at how students are progressing um, across K through 12 education? How do we break up assessments so that they're part of the learning experience, that they're meaningful for, for teachers, for students, um, for us to see how how every student is building those knowledge and skills. It is really the time for states to redefine what that means and to work with their communities. And I'm not seeing enough conversations around this happening today, but the law certainly was structured so that states could redefine what success looks like. And with that, the schools and the districts across states can really build next generation learning environments that take advantage of opening up educational opportunities through well, digital no, it, learning. It, it, when, when Race to the Top was tried out a few years back, they gave the innovative states money to do what they promised to do. Are they, but that got a lot of criticism from Republicans as giving too much power to the Department of Education. So what's gonna happen under this law is the Department of Education going to be able to channel its money to the places that are doing some innovation? States can channel the money wherever they want to now. Uh, there were certainly a huge number of people in Congress that wanted to make sure that flexibility was given back to the states. And so even though the Department of Ed and Race to the Top uh, used their leverage to create a lot of change um, sometimes that change resulted in some um, really positive developments and changing how people thought about what was possible in education. There was a real focus on personalized learning. Um, on the other side, it did uh, tie a lot of the discussions around teacher effectiveness to time-based systems of a single assessment at the end of the year. Uh, and then shift slightly to talking about multiple measures, but not in a way that was aligned with true student-centered learning, not in a way that was aligned with the development of competencies for students or meeting them where they are. So uh, the flexibility is there for the states and also with the federal funding. Uh, no longer does the Secretary of Education have authority to run race to the type 
uh, race to the top like programs. However, there's significant more money for um, schools in need of improvement and to provide additional supports to the students that need it most, and that's encouraging. Now, um, Common Core Standards, 40-some states have adopted these. Actually, it's raised state standards. We just discovered in our recent study of that. Um, so, but they're now tied to those standards in lots of states, and they're saying they're going to have tests that they're going to be administering to students tied to those standards. How is this going to fit into that kind of framework? Yes. Yeah, so on December 10th, when everything changed with the federal law, um, each state on its own adopted standards, yes. right? Yes. And so the states that chose to adopt the Common Core state standards, they did that state by state. Um, and isn't it wonderful in the United States that we've had a serious conversation around international benchmarking content? Yeah, definitely. And it, so that can continue. The idea of standards is that they're floored. They're the floor, not the ceiling of knowledge. And one thing the new federal law makes very, very clear is that the federal government will have no place in dictating standards. However, each state's new accountability plan should have college and career-ready standards as defined by that specific state. So I don't think we're going to see all of the work that states have done on their own over the last five years go away, but I think that states are going to have the opportunity to not be tied to a federal law that is really um, forcing schools to only give a single test at the end of the year, which by the way may not have any teeth for the kids or be relevant, to allow um, in the new federal law even computer adaptive testing to level and see where students are when they come in. So if they need extra help and supports, we can fill in those gaps to allow not just summative testing, but interim testing, which is defined by those summative tests being more modular. So what if you're done with the curriculum in January instead of in April? Can't we move on when we're ready? Can't we take a test when we're ready instead of waiting until the end of the okay, year. Okay, so is the technology available to do that at the classroom level in a sufficient number of schools around the country to give us hope that we're going to break through our current malaise? I would love to be able to answer that question all in one and say yes, but you have to break it apart. Is the technology available? Yes. Is it sufficiently available in every single classroom? Not yet. We still have a big digital divide. Um, policies from over at the federal FCC with E-Rate are trying to improve how schools can use broadband um, for wireless access to meet more students' needs. They're trying to develop programs that look at home connections and school connections. So is the technology out there? Yes, it's out there. Um, is it deployed? uniformly across all of our schools? No, we've got a long way to go. When you look at most other industries, they're using digital resources and digital tools um, much more effectively to get the job done. And our, our teachers need those digital tools to help personalize instruction. So where do we find the most exciting examples out there of what's possible under this new flexibility? 
we find them all, o- all across the U.S. in pockets. And so the whole key is to take the lessons learned from the best examples, examples like Teach to One um, that started in New York City, a school of one, that really pinpoints for each student where they are in math, um, provides help and support from teachers with a playlist every day, provides a whole range of digital resources tied to those math standards, and they're seeing unbelievable results, gains of 1.7 years of growth in a single year. Um, they're finding that students, even students that are far behind, when then they get that targeted help with the digital learning tools in the hands of teachers, um, that students are able to thrive and overcome gaps, catch up, get back on track. Um, not so just, where, how many places is that now being implemented? Well, over 75% of school districts use some form of online learning. And we're seeing the real growth and evolution in the field in blended learning, which is taking those killer apps, taking those platforms that help support identifying the skills and the knowledge that students have and being able to pinpoint interventions with them in the classroom. Not every student is going to be learning online at a distance. So we're seeing more and more schools use blended environments, but the key is blended environments that don't replicate the old one-size-fits-all textbook, but actually can pinpoint the pacing and the personalized interests of students as they gain those content knowledge skills. So um, Christensen, what was his first name? Uh, Clayton Christensen? Yes, Yes. Uh, Clayton Christensen said about 10 years ago that, you know, within 15 years we were going to see a transformation of our educational system. I think we're a little more cautious today than when he wrote those words, but what's your projection? As we go forward, is this going to take? Is this going to be very slow? You know, charter schools have gone from one percent to seven percent over the course of twenty years. Is that the rate at which this is going to penetrate our system, or is it going to be more dramatic than that? I think we've seen um, the rate of uptake just in technology in general in our lives, and certainly within education, is moving much faster than that. And so um, Clayton Christensen's uh, prediction that 50% of high school courses would be offered online by 2018, 2019, uh, at the time seemed um, very optimistic. Now, um, I mean, the days of a single teacher and a single textbook are rapidly coming to an end. And we actually think those numbers the predictions that he made are quite conservative, that we'll see even higher numbers. Um, it won't be that textbooks will be completely gone, but you just um, can't have 21st century learning environments without access to the vast resources that are made available in digital content, whether it's free open educational resources like Khan Academy or everything on Curriki. Think of all of the courses in colleges and universities that are being made Uh, openly available. The knowledge and the resources are there for sharing, for accessing. It's really about changing our instructional model so that every student is getting access to the courses and and the knowledge that they need. Um, And there's still huge gaps. 50% of high schools in the U.S. don't even offer calculus. And we think of 
25% of our nation's high schools don't even offer Algebra two, and those tend to be in high minority, high African-American, Latino populations. So we have really two areas we've got to focus on. How do we make sure every student is successful? How do we make sure that we level the playing field for educational opportunity? And we can do that with online learning. Well, thank you very much, Susan. This has been a great opportunity to learn about the potential impact of our new federal law, Every Student Succeeds. And let's hope that phrase actually comes to fruition. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.